Let's open our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5 as we begin a new section, Ephesians chapter 5. We've been studying the application section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has exhorted us to live a life that reflects an appreciation for the great blessing, or great blessings, plural, that have been given to us, particularly in the realm of salvation, but in the realm of inheritance as well, so past and future, as well as present. This blessing has been outlined in the first three chapters. We call that the doctrinal section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in the last three chapters, we have the applicational section. In this applicational section, Paul has told us that we should walk, and that word peripatao means to to live or live a life characterized by unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. Each of these sections has has begun with the word therefore followed shortly in that verse or the verse after that by the word walk. So that's how we know that these are uh, five different sections. Tonight we consider the final of these five sections, what it means to walk in wisdom. Now this section is a bit extended. It goes from 515 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Now you may have noticed that's not the end of the letter. The end of the letter has, it's not a postscript, but it's almost like an epilogue to it that talks specifically about something that's brought up here tonight. And that is, it'll it'll be specifically about how we are to interact with, how we're to deal with, how we're to fight this spiritual battle that we're in with Satan. And so that'll be chapter 6, verse 10 through the end of the chapter. But in terms of the the pure application section where we have this formula, therefore, and then in in some brief, a brief distance from the word therefore, the word walk, these are the five things that should characterize the Christian's life. So the word walk doesn't just mean to take put one foot in front of the other. It's Sometimes we need to be careful with Christian language, with Christian terminology, because it means a lot to us, but when we're talking to somebody else or somebody who didn't grow up in church, it may mean nothing. So when we say we are to walk in these things, it means to, we're to live a life that's characterized by these things. No one will do it with perfection. We've studied that many, many times, and it never hurts to say it one more time. We will never do this to the degree of perfection, but our life should be characterized by unity, by holiness, by love, by walking in the light, and tonight we begin a study of what it means to walk in wisdom. We'll actually only cover the first two verses, um, because they're they're that important, and then we'll, next week we'll see some, we will discuss perhaps one of the more well-known verses in all of Paul's letters, particularly in the letter to the Ephesians, what it means to not be drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. We'll have to spend a little bit of time on that verse to make sure that we have a good idea of what's going on there. For the final time in the letter, he'll use the term therefore, as we see it begins verse 15, followed by the word walk. In this, ca- in this case, it's still in verse 15 as well in close succession. We are to live a life characterized by wisdom, a life characterized by wisdom, as a result of being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not going to cover that, that verse tonight about being filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. But, but as we consider what it means to live a life of wisdom, even though we won't cover that phrase tonight, I want you to have in the back of your mind, it's not going to happen without the Spirit's ministry in our life. Now, now next time we'll talk about the more the specifics of how that works. But this is not going to happen strictly on, with human ingenuity. Or even human experience. You know, we, we, we count experience as being very valuable. But it's not going to happen strictly with human ingenuity or human experience. And it's not going to happen strictly with knowledge. 
There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. It's not going to happen strictly with knowledge. All those things are going to be used by the Holy Spirit to help us make wise decisions in life. Now, wise decision-making, wise living, is going to be the key, as we're going to see in this section, to successful relationships between spouses, between families, especially parents and children, and between employers and employees. Now, Paul's going to use terminology of slave-master, but today, since at least we're not supposed to have any slave-master relationships in the United States, I know there are some in some really warped situations, but the, the information could be applied to employers and employees. So wise living, wisdom, is going wisdom that is brought forth by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is going to be key to getting along with your spouse. It's going to be key to getting along with your children. It's going to be key to getting along with your boss or with your employees. It's going to be key to get along with your friends. Wise living. This is incredibly important. It's these relationships, the relationships of familiarity. And aren't, aren't all those somewhat familiar? Certainly spouses, uh, children, employer, employee, yes, maybe not quite so much. But, but don't you find that it's these relationships that have a certain familiarity about them that are the most difficult that we have in life? You wouldn't think it would be that way. When, when we become more and more familiar with people, you'd think it would get easier and easier. But that's not how it works out sometimes. Sometimes we turn our anger, we turn our attention in a negative way. When something, when something goes bad, we don't turn it on the world. Who do we turn it upon? All of our anger focuses right on the one that we may love the most. And because they love us the most, they're going to put up with it most of the time. Hopefully they'll put up with it. But it is damaging to relationships. So this, this particular section, chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 9, is critical to the way that we live on a day-to-day basis, because very few of us live outside of relationships with other people, whether it be friendships or marital relationships or church relationships. This is key for church relationships as well. I'm not sure who first coined the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Some say it was St. Augustine, who I have, he's not pictured up here, but this is a a statue of him. some people say it was him. We don't know for sure. It could have predated even Augustine. But unfortunately, the phrase familiarity breeds contempt, unfortunately, it's often very true. The closer we are to others, for whatever reason, the more difficult it seems to get along with them. Because with time, our flaws are exposed. And that's just the way it is with human beings. Now, there's one exception to that. That's the human being with a capital H, Jesus Christ. The more you learn about him, the more that is exposed about his character and his, of his infinite perfections, uh, the more a person, a reasonable person will come to love him more deeply all the time. But for the rest of us who have flaws, some of us are better at hiding those flaws than others, but the more we're around somebody, sooner or later, we're going to see those flaws come out. And it's wise living that's going to help us to get past those flaws when they give rise to acrimony. Because acrimony injures relationships. I know people that don't believe that, and they are just full of bullets at Christmas goose, if I could say that. I'm not sure I can. But, but I know people. I know people that think that they can say whatever they want to whoever they want to say it. Usually they have some background in psychology. You know, the get-it-off-your-chest background. 
And they think they can say whatever they want to whoever they want, and it shouldn't cause any trouble. Let me tell you something. It does. Words can injure people, and they just are floating out there in the universe, in the atmosphere. And people, it's not like you can just zap them from our memories. We forgive and forget, but to forget means we don't act upon it. We'll, we'll never totally remove that portion of, of the neuronic activity in the brain. So we need to be very, very careful. And when these things do happen, how do we get back to a place where we need to be? Well, it's going to come from wise living. And we're going to see that in this passage. It's no accident that the passage about, this, the teaching about wives subject yourselves to your husbands comes right after this information about wise living and wise living that is motivated and encouraged by the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in this filling sense. In other words, without the Spirit's ministry in your life, your relationship as a Christian is probably going to be toast with your wife. I mean, it's just going to be toast. It's going to be burned off because the Spirit's got to be involved in that marriage. And I don't know, uh, maybe this is not taught enough to people in premarital counseling. I don't know. I know there's a lot of things that are. But, but for Christians with premarital counseling, they should have it burned into their soul. That without God in your life, without God as the number one priority for both of you, there are going to be problems that are going to go a long way toward destroying this marriage. Christians have issues just like everybody else does. And the one, but the one thing about Christians, when they have issues, whether it's between mom and daughter or father and son or wife and husband, we ought to at least have, in theory, this overlay, this template that we can lay down. So, okay, well, we may not, we're not going to see eye to eye on this, it looks like. What can we agree upon? Well, let's first of all agree upon, is there any way we can settle this through, through biblical structure? You see, that's why... Christians ought not to marry non-Christians, because that throws out one of the ways that we can get through these difficulties right off the bat, because one party may say, no, I don't agree with that at all, and then where are you going to go? But at least if both parties, whether it's father, son, daughter, mother, wife, husband, or friend to friend, say, okay, we've got this problem, but at least we're both agreeing that Jesus Christ is still on his throne, right? We can agree that... The Lord would like for us to settle this in a civil way, right? And we could go back to the Word of God for help with our solutions. So it's no accident that this information about wise living comes as part of, and the information about the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit precedes phrases like, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. I've got to tell you, it's, it's almost humorous to me now when I do weddings because I, I have a policy. If, if I do a wedding, we're gonna, we do, I do traditional vows. Both husband and wife have to be a believer, or in extreme cases, there have been times when I married two unbelievers, but never a believer and a, another, a, a believer and an unbeliever. And they have, to, they have to agree to allow me to give the gospel in the, in the service. I've had one time where someone wouldn't let me give traditional vows, and I wasn't able to do that wedding. And I've had one time where someone wouldn't let me give the gospel. Christian girl would not let me give the gospel. Blew me away because I've, I've known her since she was that yay big. But she was marrying an unbeliever. She kind of neglected to tell me that part. Because you know, so that, that violated the first or the second. But how are you, you going to... The wedding thing. I get you know the, the, whole, the whole phrase, the whole cliche, if looks could kill. I mean, I'd have been dead a whole lot of times. I mean, just, just dead, dead. 
Because when you say something like that during the vows, you know, Mary, do you uh, promise to take John into your life and you, you promise to um, submit yourself to his leadership as unto the Lord? I mean, you, you can almost hear a, a gasp in the audience. <gasps> and then you're like, did he just say that? It's a hard saying, is it not? In our culture today, that's a hard saying. Submit myself to his leadership? Well, if you can't do that, you ought not to be getting married. But as a believer, the answer is yes. But it doesn't mean it's an easy thing to do. No amens from the ladies' section tonight. It's not an easy thing to do. We already feel bad enough about it. We, ha we have no idea why God put us in charge, but he did. And it's, you're not going to be able to, sum, to submit in a genuine way unless God is on your side. Because there will be plenty of times where you are asked to submit and you're thinking, rationally, there, there's just no way that I should do that. And he's an idiot. I, I can't believe he's asking me to do these things. Now, provided they're not sinful, you know, there's boundaries. But I want to introduce this by telling you this, this idea of wise living. This is critical for where we live. Christians have a lot of trouble in marriages. They have a lot of trouble with children. We have a lot of trouble at work. We have a lot of trouble in friendships that ought, ought to be remedied in a more God-honoring way. And so that's what this is going to be about. And I hope that it will, I hope that the Holy Spirit will see fit to use this in that way. You see, when these even for Christians, when these relationships are injured, we end up tending to just get another spouse. Or we just get a new set of friends. Or we decide, well, we'll just get a new church. We just, we just leave that. And this appears to work fairly well until a few years go down the line. And you realize that new husband that you have or that new wife, she has flaws too. In fact, they might not be exactly the same flaws as the first one, but a lot of times they are because you tend to pick somebody that you, know, you have this personality type that you like, and you tend to, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up again and again, and then the next time, okay, well, we'll just dump that one, and we'll just start over again and get a new one. And then it happens again. And this, is a, this is a terrible cycle. The process happens over and over and over again. Now, there is a way to disentangle ourselves from this idea of acrimony, from the whole idea of two people that ought to love each other, particularly in the husband and wife relationship, because that's the one that's going to come up first. The, the children and the employer is going to come up second and third. But there's got to be a way to disentangle ourselves from this acrimony. There's got to be a way to do it wisely and a way to do it as unto the Lord. And that is by living a life that's characterized by wisdom. Now, having said all that, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork here to begin with, and that is to... To say first that there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. They're very closely related, to be sure. And there are even places, biblically, where you'll have, you'll have the, the phrases almost used interchangeably, but they're not synonyms. They are closely related. It's possible to have knowledge without wisdom. But it's improbable that you'll ever have wisdom without knowledge. Okay? It's possible to have knowledge without wisdom. We all know people like that, don't we? We all know people that have incredible, maybe an, we call it an academic knowledge of something, but have never been able to put that knowledge into practice. We studied that for months in the letter to James. Paul's letter, I mean, James's letter to the church, rather. And so we know that the Christian way of life is not just knowing things, but it's applying what we know. So it's possible to have knowledge without wisdom. James speaks of that. 
but it's very improbable that we'll have wisdom without at least some degree of knowledge. And by that I mean perhaps the knowledge could include some life experience that, that different people have. We, we, God could use that as well. If I was to define wisdom, I would put it this way. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. Now, that's not Webster's de uh, definition, although Webster's comes very close to that. That's a biblical definition taken from as many of the passages, putting all the passages on uh, wisdom together that I could. Wisdom is knowledge properly applied. Now, specifically, the knowledge we're talking about here is not necessarily the knowledge of physics or the knowledge of medicine or the knowledge of architecture and engineering, although these are all fine things. Tonight, when I use the term knowledge and the verses that we'll talk about in just a moment, we're talking about knowledge of God's word, God's revealed will, if I could put it that way. That's what God's word is, his revealed will to us. The Bible has a lot to say about wisdom. The psalmist said in Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, before we ever get started, we've got to realize that God's God and we're not. And if, as soon as we make that proper application, as soon as that knowledge fills our soul, and as soon as we apply that, that's the very beginning of wisdom. That's the first step. What that verse tells me is that without a healthy fear of the Lord, in Greek it's phobos, it's where we get the word phobia from, but without a healthy, healthy fear, or some like to say a reverent respect of God, you're never going to have wisdom. That's why there's, there are so many unwise decisions being made by so many people today. They're not starting off, on, they're not even starting off at the beginning with a healthy respect for who God is versus who they are. He's the creator, I'm the creature. That should settle a lot of arguments right there. The whole idea of getting mad at God or shaking one's fist at God or, or uh, a book title that I read recently, although I love the author, I, when I see him next, I'm going to ask him in the next printing to try to come up with a different name. But the, the author of the, the, the book's entitled, Dear God, I'm Ticked Off. All right, well, that doesn't sound like the fear of the Lord there. Because if, if there was a healthy, reverent respect, I just don't think we'd even say things like that. Now, there's disagreement in the Christian community, but I really believe I'm on more solid ground than others are when it comes to that. In, in the book of Proverbs, a verse that you know well, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver, and it's gained better than fine gold. How many people in today's culture would agree with that? If they were honest, very few. You're exactly right, I think. If they were honest, and if, we, if it was by secret ballot, and nobody would ever know what you wrote down, I think there would be a lot with this true-false. I think they'd count that one false. You know, they, they say money can't buy happiness, and people will say, well, why don't you, you know, give me $10 million and let me see what I can do with it. You know? Not realizing they're going to blow right through that. And they're going to realize the same problems are going to exist. It, there, there are certain things that are better than silver, that are better than gold. And one of them, I think there are others too, but one of them is wisdom. <coughs> in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, is, tells us that in Christ, with, with regard to our relationship with Christ, in Christ are, all, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It, this is a relationship that we have with him, and this is the sphere that this all exists in. And, of course, James, I hope you remember this when we studied it not all that long ago on Sunday mornings. James writes, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's James chapter 1, verse 5. Very important passage. You see, that promise, especially the last one that James gives us, that's why I concluded with that one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This is a promise that, that God has obligated himself to fulfill. Now, he's, this is not a promise for knowledge. Sometimes I've known of students, even at seminary, who will, will almost use this as a rabbit's foot. They haven't studied for their Greek exam. They're way behind on their Hebrew. Uh, they perhaps skipped entirely the, the, the preparation time for their exam in theology. And then they come, oh, Lord, help me pass this test. I, I noticed when I was at Dallas Seminary, I never, ever had a, a professor that prayed, Lord, help them pass the test. You know what they would, you know what they pray? I don't know if this is something they, they have you sign a contract for before you get started. I'm not sure I'll have to ask Will sometime. But, but they always pray, Lord, would you help the students have good recall of the information that they have studied? And help them to have a calm soul so that the test, or something like this, so that the test would accurately reflect the effort that they've put into it. Now, that's a whole lot different. That's a whole lot different than, oh, Lord, help them pass the test. You see? This is not a promise to supply us with knowledge that we should have spent time gaining. I'm talking about knowledge of the Word of God, the Psalm 119 kind of knowledge. This is not a promise for that. But what James is promising is he's promising something very similar to what Paul's going to do when we get to verse 18. He's promising that if you, have, if, if you come to God and ask Him for wisdom in making the proper application to a circumstance, He's going to answer that prayer. And he's going to do it generously and without reproach. That's got to have to be done in faith. We studied that in James. But wisdom is handling life's problems in a way that God would want us to handle them. It's proper application to life's problems. The James promise presupposes at least a certain amount, at least a modicum of information that we already have that can be used to apply something. This is not an excuse to spend a life, a wasted life, where we never open God's word. And then when, when troubled times come, oh, Lord, help me get through this. That's not what this is promising. I wish it was. God doesn't work that way. So we have the promise of God in James. Also, God helps us with wisdom in that from time to time, he will place people in our lives with more maturity than we have, either by virtue of their age or by virtue of their age and by virtue of their relationship with Christ. And oftentimes, these people that are placed in our lives are very helpful in, in guiding us toward wisdom. Churches should be a place where those who are older, or should I say more mature in the faith, but older maybe with regard to age, presumably more mature in the faith, can give wise counsel to those who are younger. That ought to be one of the functions of a local church. We see that certainly in Titus, that the older women are supposed to give wise advice and counsel to the younger women, particularly with regard to interpersonal relationships. You notice how many times that comes up in the scripture? It seemed like God already knew that even in Christian relationships there would be problems. That ought to be the way it should be. And in my view, I've, I've waited for a time to to say this, this is, this is the passage where it happens to come up, in my view, this is one of the single greatest weaknesses 
of the Western church today, and I'm talking about the Western Christian church today, and that is that we find too many churches that purposefully segregate themselves with regard to age. I have never been in favor of age-segregated Sunday schools or classes with one exception, and that's our teenage college class because they, they have certain particular things. But you notice the teenage college class occurs before the worship service. And those who are in there gaining particular information from them that they, they need desperately to handle certain specific life situations that we don't necessarily face every day, then they are encouraged to come into the main worship service to interact with everybody. One of the biggest problems that I see in ecclesiology or the local church, particularly that aspect of ecclesiology called the local church, is where we are, we are purposefully marketing to have a certain age group in a local body. It's not healthy. It was never designed to be that way. And that's why the church, in us, Guinness's words, I believe it's one of the reasons why the church is an inch deep and a mile wide, rather than being a mile wide and a mile deep, is because people do not have, especially younger folks, and by younger I mean in this case under 30, younger folks are not having the opportunity to sit next to people who have gone through difficulties in life, who have survived the death of loved ones, spouses, friends, who perhaps have have had to survive severe health conditions and problems before and have a certain amount of spiritual wisdom and, and experience and insight that they could pass along to someone. You see, if you've got a church of all 30-somethings, and there are people out there that, that do seminars on teaching you how to get that particular kind of church, the problem is it's never going to be healthy by definition because there are no people in that church that have been down life's road that can pull somebody aside and say, hey, listen, I see what's going on here. You, you know, let's sit down and go have some coffee. Or that somebody could go up to and say, hey, listen, can you mind just for a second? I, I'm going through this thing at work. I know that you've you worked in this field for years. Is there any way that you could maybe sit down and have a cup of coffee with me? This is a big shortcoming in the church today. It's a huge mistake to do this. It's a huge mistake, and it's just the... The damage to our spiritual lives is just as bad as runaway spending is to the economic future of a nation. I mean, it is that damaging. A couple of years ago, someone visited our church. These people were younger. They weren't in their 30s. They, they're probably in their, about 45, so they're no spring chicken themselves. But, but uh, the comment was made about, about, the age, about the age of certain people in our church. No offense intended. And, uh, and they weren't going to come back. And I, I told the person that invited them, I said, that's, that's their problem. It's not mine. And I'm not going to take off my tie and, and make my hair spike up a little bit. <laughs> well, it might not hurt. I don't know. And if I could get away with it, I would put dye in it. But uh, the Cindy's already told me, you're not going to get away with that. Everybody's going to know that you did that. <laughs> but nevertheless, I'm not going to do it just so the dim the 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 age demographic of the church will change. I believe that you let the Lord bring the people and he'll bring a nice balance between people who are in their 80s and people in their 20s, people in their 70s and people in their 30s and, vice, and, and so on. That's the way it works spiritually. When you get marketing people in to start marketing toward, listen, we're going to have only people that are over 70 in our church. That's not a healthy church. 
Because you, you'll, you'll be top-heavy with regard to experience, but perhaps you may be weak with regard to energy and, and drive to do some things. Well, I mean, it's, tr- it's true. You see, the younger folks need the more mature folks. And guess what? It goes the other way, too. It goes the other way, too. The more mature folks need the energy and enthusiasm of the younger folks. So I think it is a sin. I'm going to come right out and say it. I think it is a sin for churches to get together and for them to decide, for for them to, to create Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Sally, who are 35 years old, have 2.4 2.4 children that have an, that combined income of $150,000 per year or more have two cars and live in a certain part of Los Angeles. That's actually what was done, by the way. And as, as soon as I read that back in the early 90s when that book came out, it's called The Purpose Driven Church. I'm not going to back off. That's what it was called, The Purpose Driven Church. Now, there was a different one, Purpose Driven Life, later. But in The Purpose Driven Church, they showed you how to come up with your own Saddleback Sam and your own Saddleback Sally, and the church should get together and find out this is what we want to attract. Hogwash, hogwash, hogwash. Church that is not a healthy church. A healthy church should welcome whoever comes in as long as they're not not a troublemaker, but welcome who comes in and embrace them, embrace the youth, embrace the maturity, and embrace everything in between. That's a healthy church. So that's another way God helps to guide us toward wise living. First, we can pray for it, but then he also sometimes brings people into our lives that are perhaps more mature than we are, older than we are, that have been down life's road and have certain experience that we don't have. And we should be able to come alongside them and say, hey man, can I talk to you for just a second? You know, and, and there should be somebody there that can answer that question for you. That's healthy. Well, I'm sure I'll bring that up more in, in the future. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about that. And I think that that's one of the areas where mistakes have been made that are terrible, terrible mistakes. And I think the Christian community is suffering because of it. Just one thing, but I think that's one thing that the Christian... When we start monkeying... I'm not going to quit. When we start monkeying... <laughs> With demographics in a church, God, the Holy Spirit, must certainly be grieved. He must certainly be grieved. I know of churches that have purposefully had meetings and changed their philosophy of ministry. There are two here in, in Houston, and some of you went to each of those. I mean, they're even here tonight. I'm not going to back off of it. There are certain churches that had meetings at, their, at the elder board level and said, we want to compete with X church down the street. How are we going to do that? How are we going to get the young people in here? This is what we're going to have to do. And some of them said, one church said, we don't care if we run the older people off. Let them go. Okay, now, that's sinful. I'm not talking about yours. Let me just say it. But that, that was a different one. But that's sinful to, for that to happen. So we're not going to do it here, at least not as long as John and I are both <laughs> alive. I know both of us share that same philosophy. Now, but back to this because we have a limited amount of time. The the present section that we begin tonight gives us another advance on the concept of wise living by cluing us in on another critical factor in properly applying knowledge to life circumstances. 
so we can pray for it. We can have other people come alongside and help us with that. But the factor that's brought in in this particular paragraph, one that we won't study tonight, but we'll study it next week, is the role of the Holy Spirit in the whole process. That's, that is the critical factor. I guess that would be what the Romans would have called the sine qua non. That's, that's the highest and the, the, uh, arguably the most important factor, the one we can do, cannot do without, is the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look at these first two verses as we prepare ourselves for the study of this extremely important passage. In verse 15, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, or not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. In verse 15, there is a textual variant. You know what I mean by textual variant? Um, when the editors of the Greek New Testament, there's a couple different editions, when they put that together, there's a committee of people that are absolute experts on the various manuscripts that are out there. For example, uh, Dan Wallace. Now, now that Bruce Metzger is with the Lord, Dan Wallace may very well be one of the world's leading authority on uh, um, textual evidence. Uh, Will Johnson happens to be an, an authority on textual evidence. Well, there's a textual variant here, meaning that some manuscripts say one thing and another set of manuscripts say another thing. In this particular case, both sets of manuscripts have pretty good merit. So how is one to determine exactly what is, what is said here? But, but I don't want to go into all the details of that. It's too late on a Wednesday night to do that. I don't want to put you to sleep. But let me just say this. When, when everything is put together appropriately, the slightly better reading would be translated something like this. Therefore, look carefully then how you walk. Therefore, look carefully then how you walk. Or look carefully, or, or look how carefully you are walking. And the, new, the New American Standard has a little marginal note on this. Most of your Bibles probably will. I see you nodding. They're, they're, uh, this is uh, something that they're not trying to hide from you. But there was just a problem with the word order. The emphasis is not so much on the intensity of the observation, but how carefully one is to walk. So it's not so much an intensity that we, every, every, all of our focus is, is turned back upon ourselves, like a, like a bodybuilder in a 24-hour in a fitness gymnasium. You know, they've got mirrors on every wall. You know, and and uh, until I hurt myself recently, I, I worked out. I was working out five days a week, and, and I, even, I even caught myself doing it once. I started laughing. But, you know, you're, you're doing the, the, the little dumbbell curl. And you're looking over at that mirror, just kind of seeing, you know, kind of feeling like a little bit. <laughs> it's not, it's not so much that. It's not that kind of, inter- but, but it is a careful evaluation. This, this is what uh, Paul is saying that we need to be look carefully of how we're walking. So it's not so much an emphasis on the intensity of the operation, but how carefully. Just, just, it's on the walk, not on ourselves. In previous studies, we've seen that this word peripateo, it's come up over and over and over again. You probably have memorized this one Greek word by now. It does mean to walk, but it refers to the lifestyle of an individual. And here we find that the believer is to make a habit of walking or living carefully. You know, people talk about living in a healthy way. People talk about living um, in a 
happy way. But God tells us to live in a careful way. Not with reckless abandon. Not when it comes to our spiritual life. Not when it comes to our relationships. These things are too important and too tender to treat with reckless abandon. Here we find the believer is to make a habit of walking carefully. But what constitutes a careful walk? What does he mean by that? Well, in context, a careful walk will be a wise walk. Verse, the rest of verse 15 enlightens us. We're to walk, we're to be careful, and we're not to walk or to live a lifestyle as if we were unwise people. In other words, as if we were people that knew a lot but never applied appropriately what we knew. A wise walk is knowing something and then making the appropriate application to the particular circumstance that we find ourselves in. Not as unwise, but as wise. So a careful walk will be a wise walk. To put it another way, a careful walk will be a lifestyle characterized by making wise decisions, meaning decisions that are consistent with God's revealed will. Now, that's key. I know we're getting toward the end, but I want you to, to absorb that. A wise decision is a decision that is consistent with God's revealed will. Now, we, where do we find God's revealed will? In the Word. So that's why we have to be in the Word on a regular basis. A decision that is consistent with God's revealed will. The first thing some people counter with when this passage is taught is that, well, there are passages, there, there are things that happen in life for, for which there is no chapter and verse. Well, certainly, I agree with that, you know, that, that there's no specific chapter and verse. For example, there's no specific chapter and verse that tells us that we should not drive 50 miles an hour talking on our cell phone, eating a hamburger, and changing the station on the radio while we're going to a school zone. There's no verse, there's no verse that says that. But there are verses that give us God's revealed will about behaving recklessly in a way that might injure someone else's dear child, their dear son or daughter. There are verses about love that would give us the general application there. That's what I mean about something that's consistent with his revealed will. What has he revealed? He's revealed things about responsibility and loving with regard to relationships. So, yes, everything is covered by the word. Even if there's no specific passage about driving 50 in a school zone, eating a ham sandwich, and changing the station, and talking to somebody on the cell phone. You see what I mean? There, the God's revealed will is out there. Now, it's up to us to familiarize ourselves with God's will. So that's why I say decisions that are consistent with God's revealed will, not that you have to find chapter and verse for the specifics, but you can find chapter and verse for the, for the general overall tone of what God's will is, if we're just knowledgeable. So first we must know the word of God, and then we can apply it. We've got to know it before we can apply it. We've studied this before. But the better we know it, the more equipped we'll be to handle a situation that comes before us, either for ourselves or when somebody comes to us for counsel, that doesn't necessarily have chapter and verse. The more we know the word of God, the more, the more we know it from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the better equipped we're going to be to make a comment about what God's revealed will is, even if there's no specific passage that says you ought not to cheat on your SAT exam. Okay? But there are passages about honesty. 
right? You see what I mean? So we, we would need to have a, an overall knowledge of God's will. So we see in verse 15, therefore, be careful how you walk. Do you see the therefore and the walk there? That's how we know a new command has begun. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Now look at verse 16. This is the last verse we'll cover tonight. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now this has always been a challenging passage for me. Because, you know, sometimes days are pretty good. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is Paul, why is he taking this negative view here? He would never make it in some churches today. They'd throw him out. You can't talk that way. What do you mean the days are evil? Well, first let's look at this phrase in verse 16, making the most of the time or your time. Some of your Bibles may use the word redeem. That's an older translation, redeeming the time. The reason they do that is, is the word that's translated making the most of sometimes had to do with monetary transactions. So that henceforth the idea of redeeming. To, to, uh, there's only a certain amount, so we're buying back the time that's been given to us. But a better way to, to translate that would be take advantage or taking advantage of every opportunity. Not wasting our lives. We don't have enough time to waste. I don't care how old we are. There are only a certain number of seconds that we have been granted the moment we're born. The moment we're born, the clock starts ticking with regard to our time here on this earth. Our time that we will, that we will have whereby we can glorify the Lord. And a lot of times we push it back. This is what happens so typically with, as, as people come through their teens. And I've, I've all often wanted to try to, to come up with a system that would derail some of this. I think we're getting close. But, you know, somebody's 15 years old. Coming to church may not be the most important thing in them. For most 15-year-olds, or for many 15-year-olds, one of the most important things to them is getting their driver's license. Well, it's for me. When I was 15. I'm, you know, I got my learner's payment. I wanted a driver's license because it represented freedom. And I could go where I wanted to. I didn't have to walk where, where I was going, and I didn't have to ask mom and dad. So I got my driver's license. So spiritual things could wait for just a little while, because but I've got to, uh, I want to get this driver's license. Then after that, the next big thing is, well, we want to get through college, right? You know, I'll, I would love to go to church, but, you know, I've got this test on Monday morning, and I really need to spend Sunday studying. And so, you know what, as, as soon as I get out of college, then I'm going to, then I'm going to start taking my spiritual life seriously. Of course, then you get out of college. And somebody comes along and says, well, I'm going to marry that girl. And she occupies all of our thoughts and all of our time. She's top shelf in our life. Well, as soon as, you know what, as soon as I, we just, we just got this wedding to get through. As soon as we get through the wedding, then I'm going to concentrate on my spiritual life. Well, you have the wedding and everything comes up. And a, a year or two later, then mama starts realizing she's pregnant. Oh, well, we've got this kids. Well, you know, I'd, I'd love to go to church, but Mama's pregnant right now, and so we need to, you know, I want to spend some time with her, and so we stay home. And as soon as these kids are born, then I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to try to focus on my spiritual life. Not that going to church is only part of your spiritual life. I'm just using that as one illustration. And you know when a lot of people start going to church? When they're about 30, as they've had a couple kids. And what I hear all the time, you know the reason they're going to church? It's not for them because they don't really need it that much. It's for the kids. Exactly right. we got to get these kids to church. That tells me they know deep in their soul what they ought to be doing. But they needed outside motivation. Now, the problem is, in the illustration I used from 15 to 30, that's 15 years that they didn't take advantage of the opportunity that was there. 
that's 15 years you're not going to get back. Now, if, if you're in that situation where you've wasted huge chunks of time, we can't look back. We have to look to the future, but we've got to make, we have got to make the most of every millisecond that God gives us here. Because there may come a time, even when we're still here, that he says, okay, that particular opportunity is over with. Maybe our health deteriorates, and you can't serve in whatever way you wanted to serve. You need to make the most of every opportunity, taking the adva- take advantage of every single one. The, the Romans had a phrase that was popularized a couple of, well, 15 years ago, I guess, by Robin Williams in a movie called Dead Poets Society. Remember that film? Actually, it was a real good film. But the, the, the phrase that they used was carpe diem. Remember that? I even had a t-shirt that said that one time. I just love that phrase. Seize the day. Now, if that was a phrase where a bunch of pagan Romans <laughs> could live their life by, that it, all the more Christians should live their lives by that. Seize this day. And it didn't just mean uh, take things as they come. It meant grab it with gusto. When they woke up in the morning, we're going to live this day as if it's the last one God ever gives me with intensity. And taking advantage of every opportunity. That's what. That's all that is piled into this particular word. But this, the, that phrase is not <coughs> one that we have trouble with. <coughs> the one we have trouble with is the last one, because the days are evil. Now, what in the world does that mean? Now, the word evil there is the word porneros. And we heard a word almost like that a couple of lessons ago in verse 5, let no immoral person. That's, that was a, a verb that's almost like that, it's, but not quite. And that was pornos. So this is poneros, but poneros is a word with an extremely wide breadth of meaning, but at the root of its meaning is the idea of evil, bad or wickedness or evil. It refers to what is ethically bad, ethically evil or ethically wicked with reference to thoughts, words, and actions. So nobody gets a pass on this one. Thoughts, words, and actions. That's all covered by this term, porneros. Why would Paul say the days are evil? Well, this is the same Paul that is written previous to this time to the Corinthians where he called Satan the God, little g, of this world. The days are evil because they are controlled by, to a certain extent, they are controlled by the God, little g, of this world, who we know as Satan who opposes God, and who will try to prevent any opportunity for the declaration of God's plan and purpose. That's why Paul calls them evil days or porneros days. Now, he's going to come back to that. He's going to leave that thought kind of dangling for a bit, and he's going to come back to that thought at the end of chapter 6. And we'll have a whole section on how to deal with Satan. So we'll, we also will kind of set that aside for now. Now, because we live in a world where there is this conflict of the heavenlies, also has been called the angelic conflict. We live in a world where we are in constant conflict with the enemy, that's Satan. Because we live in that kind of world, we're not to waste any opportunities to proclaim the goodness of God and live a life that testifies to the fact that we really believe God exists and that he saved us and he sustains us on a regular basis. There is no time to waste. We wake up in a battlefield every day. Now, you may not hear the shots going off, but they're going off. I think if we could see, and sometimes artists have done a, a, a pretty good job of rendering this, if, if we could see what's going on right now in terms of an angelic 
battle, angelic conflict, the battle of the heavenlies, and we were to step outside, I would, I would really, I'd almost be insulted if there wasn't a battle of the heavenlies going on all around here tonight with, with Satan's emissaries doing everything they could to disrupt the teaching of the word of God and God's emissaries holding them back. I'm, I'm certain that that's what's happening. Not just here, but I'm talking about everywhere where the word of God is proclaimed. There is a battle going on in your own personal life. When you get up out of bed in the morning, you're walking into a battlefield, a minefield, if you will. That's why you need to pray for your loved ones, for spiritual protection for them. And I, and I hope you pray for all your, your church friends, too. Spiritual protection every single day. Because this is a dangerous battle. That's what he means when he says the days are evil. So in conclusion, Paul is just saying life is short. We have a limited number of opportunities to serve the one who created us and who saved us and who sustained us. We need to make every day count. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this admonition to take advantage of every opportunity. We know from our flesh we, we get lazy. We don't want to do that. We wake up and act as though we don't live in a battlefield, <coughs> that Satan is not real and, and that uh, everything is just fine. But we do recognize the principle of rejoicing in each day because you've made it. But we also recognize what Paul has taught us here, that we need to be careful with each day to live it wisely to make proper application of the knowledge that we have to the specific circumstance that we find ourselves in. So that, as we'll find out soon, that these relationships that we have in life might be honoring to you. So help us through your Holy Spirit in the days to come to make wise decisions, to live lives that glorify you, and to make the most out of every opportunity that, that is presented to us. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.